Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. David Leonhardt writes recently in the New York Times that in the suburbs of Salt Lake City, there's a planned community called Suncrest that has turned out to be a good place to study voter turnout. Uh, Suncrest feels like one community full of modern single-family houses, but it straddles two different counties, Salt Lake and Utah. And in 2016, the two used different voting systems. Salt Lake County in that year switched to mail-based voting. And uh, Utah County portion of Suncrest, by contrast, uh, residents still voted the old-fashioned way. They visited the local polling place. Um, it was a natural experiment with impressive results. Turnout in Salt Lake County portion of Suncrest rose by much more than in the Utah County portion. Uh, the convenience of voting by mail led more people to do so. We're going to talk about that most important right and duty in a democracy, voting. Today we'll examine who votes and why, attempts at voter suppression and voter encouragement. We'll talk about election security as well. Our guests include Amber McReynolds, Director of Elections for the City and County of Denver and member of the National Vote at Home Institute Board. Amber McReynolds, welcome to the program. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. And we bring in Amelia Showalter, co-founder and CEO of Pantheon Analytics and Director of Digital Analytics for President Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. Uh, Amelia Showalter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Let me start with you, Amelia Showalter. I uh, understand uh, Pantheon Analytics uh, conducted that study that I mentioned, that uh, Mr. Lanhart mentioned. Um, what was the impetus behind this uh, study? Yeah, well, this was a great opportunity to study the effects of vote by mail. Um, you know, as a researcher, uh, our my, my spidey sense tingled when I heard that Utah had some counties, but not all counties, doing vote by mail in 2016. Um, we at Pantheon Analytics had actually done a study of Colorado, um, so I'll be excited to hear from uh, Amber, uh, when, you know, Colorado switched to uh, all-mail voting in 2014. Um, the only thing there is that because all of Colorado switched. Um, we didn't really have any kind of control group to look at. You know, we don't, we, we couldn't separate out some of the effects uh, of, of Colorado's switch from other things that were happening in Colorado in 2014. But in Utah in 2016, um, because you still had some counties there voting the old-fashioned way and, and other counties moving to vote by mail, um, it was kind of like this natural experiment. Um, now, the counties that, um, you know, were in, in with one type of voting weren't perfect controls for the counties with the other type of voting, but what we were able to do is control for a lot of those pre-existing differences and actually tease out what was the effect of vote-by-mail specifically. So, um, yeah, it was a very exciting thing to study for us. And some interesting results. What were the results? Yeah, so what we found is overall in the state, um, we can attribute uh, something like five to seven points uh, in turnout improvement to uh, to vote by mail. Um, so what we did, uh, we looked at all the counties overall, and what we found is that um, in Utah, the counties that used traditional polling places in 2016, um, they voted at a rate of about 67%, um, and that was... Uh, two points lower than what we had expected based on turnout models, based on, you know, sort of their uh, pre-existing propensity to vote. Um, so two points lower, but that's, that's pretty close. Obviously, you would rather not underperform, but again, pretty close. Um, but what we found is that the counties in Utah that did vote by mail turn out with 76%. Um, now, if you calculate 76% minus 67% on the surface level, that sounds like a nine-point gap. 
But um, in the counties that voted by mail, they already were a little more likely to vote just based on previous voting history. Um, What we found is that that 76% turnout in the vote by mail counties was about five points better than expected. Um, And so here's where we get into a little little extra math. It's not too complicated. Um, But if you compare, you know, this group of counties over here that did two points worse than expected to this group of counties over there that did uh, five points better than expected, um, that gives us this seven percentage point, what we call a difference in difference. Um, And and that's sort of the the upper limit of what we think uh, we can attribute, the turnout effect we can directly attribute to voting by mail is that seven-point gap, um, mm-hmm. which is actually really, uh, just so your listeners know, that's actually a really big uh, big improvement. Um, I know 7% doesn't sound like, you know, too much, but, um, you know, it, we've certainly had presidential elections decided by smaller than se- you know, smaller gaps than seven percentage points. Um, you know, I have worked on campaigns and advised campaigns, and, you know, if we run a get-out-the-vote campaign, you know, send volunteers to knock on doors. If we're getting an extra one or two percentage points in turnout, we're very happy with that. So, um, you know, a, a seven-point percentage, uh, a seven-percentage point increase in turnout in, in civic participation is really, really great. Let me turn to Amber McReynolds. Uh, if, as elections official, if you were going in and whatever the, the, the change was, I, I imagine you would say seven percent. That's, I'll take that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we've had this uh, deployed in Colorado along with vote centers and some other reforms that we made in 2013. And we've seen significant um, uh, increases in certain areas, certain age demographics. We saw our highest turnout that we've ever had in a presidential overall in 2016, even more so than 2008. Um, So this is having an impact as we've seen more use of vote at home and ballot delivery in Colorado, we have seen an increase in turnout. Um, let me quote you. Uh, this is quoting um, Amber McReynolds on uh, Twitter. Uh, you say, voting ranked as number one in terms of being a good citizen. And you go on to say, as a dynamic, highly complex, and decentralized ecosystem, the election administration field involves commitment by federal, state, and local elections officials, but also technologists, stakeholders, advocacy groups, and above all, voters. Um, which, you know, which would seem obvious, but sometimes I get lost, it like gets lost in the, uh, uh, you know, in, in the weeds. You, you've made a real uh, push to uh, find out what voters want, uh, I guess, and what, what would make voters come out to the polls. Yeah, I mean, our, my, my approach, and I've been um, director for seven years and been in the office now for 13, um, it's been about sort of focusing on the voter, having a voter-centered approach to election administration, analyzing, you know, what reasons they call us, why they're confused, trying to make their voting experience more efficient and meaningful for them. And so that's really how, you know, we looked over time, we had a huge increase in voters requesting to get their ballot by mail when it was a request process. And once we got over 85%, it's sort of, you know, the remainder of those were at calling us and saying, how come you didn't mail me a ballot? Um, so that was really the, the reason why then we went and I helped write the legislation in 2013 to move to a full ballot delivery state with vote centers still as an option for citizens to come in and register. And then we also have same-day registration, um, which not I think we're the only all-mail ballot state or ballot delivery state that does have same-day registration. 
and that is another reason that we have seen an increase in participation because we've eliminated some of the confusing and inconsistent uh, practices that, frankly, are difficult for voters to deal with when they do this maybe once a year, maybe two or three times a year. Let me turn back to Amelia Showalter. Um, this idea of this being a very important part of citizenship, right? This, you know, some people. Yeah, I don't want to brag, up, but but it, it's it's very important to me. So, uh, right. voting by mail has been kind of a, a different thing. It's been much more convenient in in the county where I live. Is we have vote by mail, have for mm-hmm. a couple of cycles. But I I kind of miss going to the polling place. You know, school board election when it's me and one neighbor, and I, I, I kind of feel some pride in that, and I get a little depressed as well that so few people are coming out. Um, and so I'm glad when, when there are measures that increase voter participation, but it's also a responsibility, isn't it? So uh, that's a long way of, of asking the following question. Why do voters vote, and and why do they not vote? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a lot of people uh – I mean, most most people in this country believe in voting. Um, even people who who are uh, not perfect voters um, usually say that you know it is important to them to vote, even if you know something happens and they don't make it to the polls on election day. They they understand that that it is important. Um, but you know, voters vote when it is easy to vote. I mean, that you know that's that's partly what we're seeing with vote by mail. But you know, with any any situation, um, the easier you make it to vote, uh, the more likely people are. To do it, um, so I mean, you know, you had mentioned at the beginning of the program uh, the example of, of Suncrest there in, in in Utah, this planned community straddling the line between Utah County and Salt Lake County. Um, I think that's a, it's a good example, not just of demonstrating um, uh, the effect of vote by mail, but even prior to the advent of vote by mail, um, you saw different rates of voting on the two sides of that community. Um, it's essentially it's for the people on the Utah County side of Suncrest, they had to drive 10 minutes, you know, not a huge drive, but you know, they had to do a 10 minute drive down the hill to their polling place. Whereas the people in that community on the Salt Lake County side, their voting place was literally right there in the heart of Suncrest. And so even before vote by mail was implemented, um, you already saw differences there. You already saw higher voting, uh, higher turnout on the Salt Lake County side. Um, and so, you know, I mean, what we found is that after after the advent of vote by mail, there was actually an 18 point gap between those two sides of Suncrest, um, and about 12 and a half percentage points of those of that gap can be attributed to vote by mail. But the remainder of the gap was explained by pre-existing differences in vote propensity, and that's just because salt, the people on the Salt Lake County side they had already been voting at higher rates. It had already been easy for them to vote. They had gotten into the habit of voting, and voting really is habit-forming. Once people get it into their heads that they're going to vote every cycle, um, they're just much more likely to do it again. Let me ask the same question to you, Amber McReynolds. What, uh, why do, what have you found? Why do people vote and why do they not vote? Is, is the main well, factor convenience? Uh, some of it is convenience, but I think the one thing I did want to bring up, because I certainly get your um, desire to have the in-person voting experience, and it's interesting because with our ballot delivery system, the one thing that we have expanded, and we've done it in a big way in Colorado and now other states like Washington and Oregon have also expanded this piece, but we have 24-hour drop boxes, drive-up, drop-off, all of these ways that you can basically submit your ballot in person. And so we actually see over 80% of our our electorate actually cast their ballot in person. So even though they're using the ballot we mailed to them, 
through the ballot delivery system, they're not actually voting it by mail, which is part of the reason why I've tried to advocate for people to move away from the uh, kind of terminology of vote by mail because most people are actually choosing to vote in person. They're just submitting that ballot we mailed to them. They had time to drop, you know, to, to vote it at home, research issues. They get all of that extra um, experience and, and time to actually vote their ballot at home, but then can can submit in person, drop it in the box, have that experience. And we've tried to support them, you know, with Snapchat filters and Instagram and encouraging people to post about their in-person experience. We get a lot of people taking videos and selfies of themselves, you know, putting their ballot in the box. Uh, I've also heard talk of people having, you know, kind of parties at their house um, where they talk about issues and then they go off and they vote their ballots after they've um, conversed with their friends about different things. So I think in a lot of ways it actually encourages a different type of in-person experience, um, which is which is pretty exciting to see. Um, and then I think just on the consistency pieces, I mean, you know, uh, and I talk about this a lot with the voter-centered nature of things, you know, inconsistency in the process, whether it's difficult deadlines, residency requirements, whatever those things are that vary by, by state, are confusing to people that don't normally, you know, get involved in this process. I mean, they're even confusing to people that are in the process. Um, so anything we can do to eliminate some of those um, uh, inconsistencies and confusion helps voters, and it supports voters in their voting process. And that's what we've tried to do here, and we've had great success with, um, you know, Colorado has fifth highest turnout in the country in 2016. We have the highest voter registration rate of any state, and it's policies that we've changed that have made that happen. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, explore uh, maybe uh, the ways that the voting system can be manipulated, or maybe that's a loaded word, uh, you know, changed purposely with the uh, w- with a partisan uh, viewpoint. Uh, you know, voter suppression, so- so-called voter suppression laws, uh, redistricting, uh, that sort of thing. We'll continue this discussion on voting. Very important element, of course, in any democracy, ours included. We're talking with Amber McReynolds, Director of Elections for City and County of Denver, member of the National Vote at Home Institute Board, and Amelia Showalter, co-founder and CEO of Pantheon Analytics and Director of Digital Analytics for President Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. You're welcome to join this conversation. hope that you will. I wonder if you vote. Why or why not? And uh, what, what changes would you like to see to our voting system? Upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or 800-826-1495. More following this break. Did you know that students with disabilities can go to college? Students from all over the nation with disabilities want to have careers, and many are taking college classes. As these young adults learn to socialize and interact with others, they live with roommates and receive support from mentors, tutors, and assistive technology. Students become more independent as they find internships and employment leading to meaningful career paths. Students with intellectual or developmental disabilities can thrive in a higher education environment as they explore the full college experience. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Gem City Fine Foods, a certified gluten-free bakery in West Valley producing frozen desserts available in select retailers and online. GemCityFineFoods.com You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about voting. We're examining who votes and why and uh, want to get uh, late in the program into talking about election security the beginning of this uh, segment, however, I want to talk about uh, attempts at voter suppression and voter encouragement. We've talked about a little bit on the voter encouragement uh, side. Uh, so I want to start with uh, Amelia Showalter. Amelia Showalter um, reading here. This is a, a piece in Medium.com. This is from 2014. I wonder if the same uh, ideas apply. I'm guessing that some of these do. This was ahead of the midterms that year. And uh, this was headlined, headlined, The Elephant in the Voting Booth, Why Redistricting, Turnout, and the Big Sort Make These Midterms Tough for Dems in that, in that particular instance. So we're heading right. toward the midterms now. Um, so, you know, we talk a lot about redistricting, <laughs> talk about voter suppression, um, you know, turnout and, and the big sort. Maybe, maybe start with the, the voter suppression laws. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of different laws in, in various different states that are aimed at uh, making it harder to vote. Um, so voter ID laws would be one of the primary examples. Um, but even things just like restricting voting hours, um, you know, for places that aren't doing vote by mail. And of course, I think the research shows that everyone should be. Um, but places that, aren't, that don't have vote by mail, you know, are they making it easier um, to vote early? Um, you know, if someone knows that they might not be able to make it to the polls um, on a Tuesday. You know, maybe they have a job that prevents them from doing that. You know, there are states that are trying to roll back um, the ability to vote early or to request an absentee ballot. Um, so, you know, there's, there's just a variety of, rule, of laws being put into place that make it harder for people to vote. And, and those um, often quite transparently, and I say this, yes, I am a, I'm a Democrat, so maybe I'm a little partisan, but, you know, you've had uh, sort of some off-the-record moments exposed where, where there are Republican legislators saying this is going to help us as Republicans. Um, you know, there was sort of a famous uh, uh, quote, uh, I believe, from Pennsylvania in 2016 about that. Um, and to me, it's not just, you know, like taking off my, my Democrat hat here. You know, as a citizen of the country, you know, I, I want more people to vote. Like, I think our government is better when it represents the true will of the people more. And so having more people vote, um, you know, people who want to vote, uh, you know, rather than putting hurdles in front of them, I think it's better to make it easier. And, uh, of course, redistricting, people who don't like the way their state was redistricted could call it gerrymandering. Um, you know, it's been described as, in some cases, uh, politicians choosing their voters, not the other way around. Yeah, and, you know, redistricting is an interesting thing, and, and gerrymandering absolutely is a problem in this country. Um, the thing that I will say, though, that I think people often forget is that you can't have gerrymandering without this, this idea of the big sort, without um, uneven distribution of people who are, tend to vote Democrat versus people who tend to vote Republican. Um, you know, we Democrats, and I'm a good example of this, you know, we tend to concentrate ourselves in cosmopolitan cities, um, you know, in, in sort of uh, certain enclaves. Republicans um, are a little more distributed in the country, um, you know, in suburbs, in rural areas. And so, you know, if we had 
uh, a perfectly even distribution of likely Republicans and likely Democrats in the country, you wouldn't be able to draw district boundaries and and get these lopsided, you know, very safe Democratic and very safe Republican districts. Um, so, you know, before we even uh, have the problem of gerrymandering, the you know sort of human created problem of gerrymandering, we also have this this problem of distribution that um, you know even if you took it entire took the redistricting process entirely out of partisan hands and let a computer, for instance, draw districts, you might still get um, a pretty lopsided result. You know, you might still get um, a state like Florida, for instance, that you know is fairly 50-50, um, at least especially in presidential years, you could still get a strongly Republican legislature um, just based on the way that particular voters are concentrated in different areas. Let me uh, pause here. We got an email from Steve. Steve says, oh, no, don't tell anyone. Uh, Tom, you're, you've got to keep this information bottled up. Kind of kidding, he says. You're letting the cat out of the bag. The forces for voter suppression, yes, I mean you, Republican Party, are listening to the show, learning the tricks to get out to the vote so they can craft legislation to outlaw them. Yeah, kind of kidding, he says. Uh, so we'll, unless you want to comment on that, we'll let that uh, uh, stand. Well, okay. Well, one thing I do want to say, just just to that point. Um, so you know, we, we, we were talking about vote by mail, um, and this is one uh, election reform that you know. Yes, uh, as I said, I I am a partisan, but when I looked at the actual data, the results uh, were not strongly partisan. Um, the, the turnout increased in vote by mail areas. Um, among low propensity voters, and yes, a little bit more among young voters, um, uh, for instance. But the effect was not so strongly partisan that um, this should be thought of as a a Democrat-friendly reform. Um, I don't think that Republicans should be afraid of of implementing vote-by-mail. I think that a lot of the voters that turn out more are kind of voters in the middle. Um, You know, they're low propensity voters, so they don't have uh, as strong opinions um, on which party to vote for, they aren't actually as affiliated, and so um, I don't think that uh, you know Republicans in 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 other states should be necessarily afraid of of a reform like vote by mail or or automatic voter registration. Yeah, and and I can add to that too. I don't that that this reform has not benefited one party over another at all in Colorado, and Colorado is very much a purple state. Uh, evenly divided, kind of, you know, 30% Dem, 30% Republican, 38% unaffiliated. If anything, it has given people uh, more time with their ballot, reduced mistakes, allowed them to research, um, and it's benefited the electorate widely, not one party over another. Um, And I think we've also seen it certainly benefit younger voters with the registration modernizations that we did here. Voters that tend to move more are younger. They also happen to be more unaffiliated, at least in Colorado. So we've seen benefits to those groups, um, uh, certainly in their, in their process. So I, I, I just, I disagree that it, um, you know, I, so I don't, have not seen this benefit one party over another. And I think, I think there's other benefits to the administration of the election with this paper, this is the most efficient and effective way to deliver a paper ballot. So in the era of some of the cybersecurity issues and the push for there to be a paper ballot associated with every vote, this is the most effective and efficient way to deliver a paper ballot. Secondly, um, you know, some of the other things that, that we have seen in terms of 
just voter engagement um, and things like that overall, we're, we're able to reduce some of the risk in the election administration process by centrally tabulating and tallying the ballots that are coming in um, in this model. We also have Colorado, Washington, Oregon, now Utah, California, the states that have moved to this type of model. With us delivering a ballot out, we need to know where voters are. So voters, if, if the ballot comes back undeliverable because it's not forwarded, we, they have to take action to update their address. In the traditional um, sort of ways of, and methods of polling places and things like that, you don't have that engagement with voters. So your address might change, and then you end up at the wrong polling place, and then you get the wrong ballot style. And this actually reduces a lot of that complexity and confusion, and it makes the list actually more accurate from an addressing perspective. So there's huge benefits across the board that also address many of the um, uh, challenges that get brought up in the election administration world on, on kind of both sides of the aisle. Um, Amber McReynolds, what, what are you hearing from colleagues uh, who are not on the vote at home uh, systems? Are, are they worried about security with the recent you know, reports of hacking and, and attempts to hack? Well, I think, I mean, to me, and, you know, we've seen this here, this actually adds security across the board. Uh, and, and, again, it needs to be effectively implemented, obviously. I mean, like with anything, the devil's in the details. You know, here in Colorado and in Denver, as we started to see mail balloting increase, we built a system called Ballot Trace, and that basically gives voters uh, transparency to know where their ballot is at every point when it's been printed, when it goes to the post office. We remind people um, via text and email about turning it in. So we're constantly, you know, we use this as a communication tool, and it gives voters the comfort to know where their ballot is at any given moment. Um, it's things like that that I think support the ballot delivery system that make it that much more effective. And I've been, you know, talking about this around the country, and I get calls from election officials in every state weekly about, you know, wanting to move to this way and how do they do it and how can they be more effective in it. And so I think the, the whole goal is to sh comp continue to share ideas across states on how to do this. And there is a ton of interest um, across the country with regards to this model in every state. What, what are officials telling you, your colleagues, uh, of why they want their state or their county to, to move to vote at home? Well, I think they, they hear you know, us talk about a lot of the benefits. Um, you know, if you go to New York City on Election Day in November and you end up waiting in line for three to four or five hours, and if that's your first voting experience, the likelihood of you coming back to do that again and taking off work and, and all of that is probably not going to happen. Um, states like, you know, Virginia or Pennsylvania where they have it, you know, it's mostly concentrated to election day, which which is inherently risky when you're putting everything in one day, right? So this model also spreads this process over a longer period of time so that there isn't this crush on election day or risk associated with everything happening on one day. Um, you also can be more efficient with your equipment distribution. So if you're going to have a voting model that's all on election day, you're going to have to have 10 to 20 times as much equipment out deployed to handle the volume of people that you're going to deal with. If you do something like ballot delivery, you know, like we were able to replace our voting system uh, a few years ago for a tenth of the cost of what it would have cost to do polling places in our old method. So as 
states look to replace equipment or get paper-based systems or things like that, adjusting the voting model first can save them a ton of financial resources and also better serve their electorate, which is what we all want. We have a a question from Rob in St. George. I'll hold off on that for one more minute, Rob. Um, I want to uh, turn back to uh, Millie Showalter and ask the elections security question to you. Is this something you worry about? Is this a real danger um, or has this been overblown? I think it's been overblown. I mean, the the way that uh, vote by mail is set up is um, that you know you you have to sign your ballot. Um, I actually I've, I I am originally from Washington State, so I uh, voted by mail for um, uh, my early twenties. Um, and you know you have to uh, register a signature when you um, you know with uh, with your ballot, and then um, that is matched against the signature that they have on file. Um, and and that is a pretty secure way of uh, of ensuring that the vote is accurate. Now, I mean, I know it sounds so old school. It's, you know, we think of security in terms of, you know, complex uh, information systems. But uh, yeah, doing things as a paper ballot with, with signature check, like that actually is a pretty secure way of doing things. What about uh, what about the, the, the day of the, the traditional way of voting? Is, is, do you worry about that being open to security issues? You know, I'm a, I'm not an expert on that, and I think that um, you know you would want to get someone in here to talk about uh, voting uh, systems and and you know the ways that they could or could not be hacked. Um, I you know I don't worry about that as a voter uh, because I think well okay you know I do have a, pa- a paper ballot in front of me um, and there there are uh, accountability uh, measures put into place that uh, that my ballot will be counted. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that um, you have a lot of experts out there that are thinking about these exact questions and, you know, figuring out where are the vulnerabilities um, and, uh, you know, making sure that we can avoid those vulnerabilities. And it does seem to me that consensus is that paper balloting is the way to go. Here is an email from Rob in St. George. Rob says, Democracies that use gerrymander and spoiler-proof proportional representation experience higher voter turnout. Therefore... Would your guests agree that plurality, winner-take-all voting, is a form of voter suppression? Are single-member districts a form of voter suppression? If so, what are reformers doing to replace uncompetitive and unrepresentative elections with these proportional systems that have proven to elect more women and more racial minorities in advance of the decennial redistricting? I'm not sure who wants to tackle that first. Um. Uh, I can speak speak a little bit to that. So um, there is an initiative in Colorado that is um, redistricting reform, Fair Maps Colorado, that's going to, it's been referred by the legislature to the ballot. It will significantly improve transparency and the fairness of the process. So that's all positive. I hope that that passes. I've been supporting that and I support it publicly and I'm, I'm happy to see that kind of reform come to Colorado, and it was actually referred by the legislature, I think, 100 to 0 um, in terms of votes. So it was a bipartisan bill, which is fantastic to see. Uh, secondly, on the um, uh, kind of the plurality type of system, in you know that most of that is dealt with at the state legislature level. So a, a change there would have to you know come from that level or be a citizens initiative in Colorado, but. In Denver, we actually have under our city charter for all of our municipal offices, including mayor, clerk and recorder, uh, who's my boss, and, and auditor and city council, you, you have to get 50-plus. So we basically have a runoff system where the top two go to a runoff. 
um, we are advocating and, and talking now about ranked choice voting as a replacement to that system. Um, we're very interested in it. We've had a few different informational sessions here in Denver, and so I think that that, again, you know, you want to make sure that when an election happens, somebody wins with the majority and not the, not the sort of plurality of, of votes. And so I think, you know, our current system of runoff is, is um, great to, to that achievement, but I think ranked choice would make it more efficient. Um, and so we're, we're definitely looking at and reviewing those um, types of reforms now. Um, I think the one other thing I would say on some of this is, you know, when you have a group of people get elected, and this is, this goes to the partisanship nature of some of this stuff, and I'm unaffiliated, so I'll disclose that up front, but when you have a system that elects, you know, or, or has kind of the political parties that are involved in various aspects of this, the legislature being willing to change something that just that they just won to get their seat is 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 not likely, right? So uh, we're also seeing a lot of reforms come about through citizen initiatives. Um, but I think it is one of these things. Election administration needs to be free from partisan politics, and so kind of keeping the two separate are really important. Um, so that we can have effective reforms that respect the voters and respect citizens, not just sort of only boost the two political parties in, in, in terms of their power. Amelia Showalter, what would you say to those uh, questions posed by Rob? Oh, yeah, I mean, and even as a partisan, I, I really wish we had uh, something closer to proportional representation. I think it would be just way better for our country. I think that, um, you know, we have this uh, system in place that makes it really hard to, um, to have more than two parties, um, it's hard to get. You know, it's hard to get uh, places where you know the majority of people are actually voting for the candidate who wins. Um, I think it would be way better if we were able to implement all those reforms. The only problem is that it would require a lot of different reforms. Um, you know, when we have a first past the post system um, and single member districts. Uh, those things are sort of mutually reinforcing. Uh, it means that, you know, you kind of end up with a two-party system by default. Um, and so I love that there are, are reforms on the ground, but I agree that, like, it's going to have to come from citizens um, because, you know, people, as Amber just said, uh, you know, the people who are uh, elected in the two-party, first-past-the-post system are generally not going to um, want to reform it, um, even though it should be reformed. And some of this is uh, maybe not even redistricting, uh, or maybe it's the big sort. For example, in Utah, very, very red state. Uh, I'm sometimes jealous looking, uh, you know, over the over the mountains to uh, to Colorado, a purple state. I have friends who tell me, well, why should I vote in the presidential election? A Republican <laughs> candidate's gonna gonna get Utah's votes. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it, the, I think the, one of the bigger things that it would be great if we emphasize more in our society is is down-ballot uh, voting. Um, you know, when those of us who study elections, you see a lot of what we call down-ballot roll-off, where, you know, in, in a presidential year, you have people that vote for president and then they don't vote for anything else. Um, you know, maybe they are in a state like yours that is, is uh, you know, heavily um, favored towards one party at, uh, at the state level. Um but there are so many things that are so many other things to vote on. You know, there are um, your your local city council, your state legislator, um, ballot initiatives. 
Uh, and um, I, I really hope that in the coming years, especially as you know, more and more people in this country are, are getting attuned to voting and realizing how important it is, I hope people pay attention to the, uh, the rest of the ballot, not just the, the top of the ticket. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, maybe what, maybe not sky's the limit, but what what uh, what is the upper limit? What, where could we get if we uh, implemented, if, if the goal nationwide was to increase voter participation, what might be possible? And maybe methods, uh, maybe bring up, I always bring up the Australian model. You're probably familiar with that uh, uh, compulsory voting get a small fine yeah. if you if you don't if you don't show up at the polls the result has been you know pretty high voter participation but um at you know at what cost let's talk more about that following this break programming on utah public radio is made possible in part by our members and the cache valley visitors bureau presenting living history at the american west heritage center featuring a herd of bison mountain men pioneers and turn-of-the-century farmers activities include pony rides and tomahawk throwing information available at explorelogan.com Hey, I'm Chris Della Torre, sitting in for Tom Power. Linwood Barkley writes the kind of book that just keeps you up at night, trying to figure out who done it. In his newest novel, A Noise Downstairs, you've got murder, you've got betrayal, and maybe a haunted typewriter that's coming up on cue from PRI, Public Radio International. Make this the Summer of Blues by joining Utah Public Radio on July 29th for our new event, Blues, Brews, and Barbecue at the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. Come enjoy the warm summer evening air with a plate of barbecue food and outdoor live music performances from Nora Barlow and the Sammy Hickson Blues Band. Hang out with the UPR crew and say hello to the MC for the evening, our favorite jazz time host, Steve Williams. It's easy to join us. Just head to upr.org for more details and to get your tickets. We're talking about voting on the program today. Of course, supreme importance in a democracy. Uh, but not everyone votes. We're asking, why do people vote? Why do they not vote? And we're talking about uh, external uh, systems and election security as well we would uh, love to get your comment or question upraccess at gmail.com is uh, the place to go upraccess at gmail.com or you can call 800-826-1495 800-826-1495 and we're talking with uh, amber mcreynolds director of elections for city and county of denver and uh Amelia Showalter, co-founder and CEO of Pantheon Analytics. And Pantheon Analytics was involved in a, a voter study here in Utah as uh, Utah is transitioning more and more counties to uh, vote at home or vote by mail uh, systems. Again, you're welcome to join the conversation here at uh, upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, so, Amelia Showalter, a, a big part of this is voter registration, the the uh, how hard or easy it is to register uh, to vote. Uh, many nations have automatic registration, right? Do you, uh, you uh, any interaction with the government, and you're automatically signed up to vote? Right. Yeah. And um, now you know we're we're starting to see that as a reform that people are are espousing. Um, we've got a couple states that are doing that, and I I I think it's great. I think with all of these reforms, you know, whether it's vote by mail or automatic voter registration, 
um, you know, it, it, we can take a yes and approach. You know what I mean? Like all of these things can can happen, and um, we really should be pursuing all of them. Uh, what about uh, restoration of uh, voting rights for for felons? Some states have done this. Yeah, and I think most states are are moving towards that that haven't done it already. Um, you know, that uh, to me it seems like an obvious thing to do. I mean, if if someone has um, has put in their time and, and repaid their debt to society, uh, you know, it, we we should restore their voting rights. Also, I mean, you know, that is, it's not just, um, you know, philosophically a good idea. It's also, you know, we want to make sure that everyone in the country is heard from. Um, so I think that that's a very good reform as well. Amber McReynolds, I want to talk about voter participation, voter turnout. You're greatly interested in this, I'm sure, as an elections official. Um, and according to Pew Research, uh, the 2016 election a record 137.5 million Americans voted in the presidential election. That's about 61% um, as a share of adult U.S. citizens. Um, which, you know, 61% compared to some years, that's not bad. But then glass half empty, you look at, you know, almost 40% of Americans who didn't bother to show up. Yeah, and and I, um, as an administrator of this and now, you know, overseeing basically the you know, what I would describe as, as one of the most successful places to vote in the country is, is in Colorado, certainly. And, and a lot of, you know, I still maintain that it is our job as election officials to ensure that the process is fair and that everyone has equal opportunity to participate. And the problem with states, and, you know, Colorado used to be in this, the problem where you have voter registration cutoffs or you have residency cutoffs or you have... Um, kind of limited options to voters, whether they're working multiple jobs or going to school or military, anytime you have a system that limits opportunity, whether it's in registration or balloting, um, you, you create issues for the electorate and, you, and there's barriers. Mm-hmm. So our job, and I you know, fundamentally believe this, that it is our job to set up the most um, efficient systems that we possibly can for um, for uh, for voters to access the process, and when we do that on the administration side of things, we actually make it more efficient to actually run the election. So we've realized significant operational efficiencies, cost savings, and a lot of that has come because we've reduced our call volume by 90-plus percent by just making it easier for people. People don't have to call us and ask us for information anymore because their ballot comes automatically their registration gets updated as they move. Uh, we have updated our registration processes in Colorado to basically be automatic where things are happening if you interact with the government. Um, and so by doing that, um, it makes the system better for everybody. And, you know, voter registration drives and, and all of the efforts that get put in nationally to just register people to vote are significant. And part of the reason that's happening is because the government isn't providing accessible options in most states for that to happen. So uh, private groups have to invest a ton of money in making that happen. If we just make that more effective across the board, that money can then go to voter engagement and outreach efforts instead of voter registration all the time, Mm. right? So that's part of the reason for, for wanting to advocate for those sorts of reforms is it just makes it more efficient and effective for everybody. 
As an elections official, I wonder what you think of the Australian uh, model. I, I, I could imagine, if, if put myself in your place, I would think, uh, man, if we could get to 90%. Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, at a cost. It's a, it's a small fine. It does get people to the polls, but is, is that really, you know, there's some compulsion there. I don't. I don't think that a system like that is necessary. Um, I mean, Colorado, we had, um, I think, 85%-ish in the last election across the state. Um, You know, Denver, we we had some age age demographics were 91% active turnout, Um, 72% overall registered voters um, when we include inactives. But, you know, the fact that we're in our 80s and above um, across the board by just making it easy and accessible for folks um, is significant. I think that reforms like what we have, registration reforms, these sorts of things across the country, we'll see everyone else kind of get up to that level. Um, And then I think the other thing that's important to people is one of the first ways that, that citizens interact with their government or do it regularly is through the voting process. And so if that is effective and efficient, you know, it certainly would would be the case that people will have more confidence generally in their government, what's happening, transparency, you know, participation kind of drives those things. So there's a there's a legitimate civic reason to try to make this easier and give people access to the process that they frankly pay for. I mean, you know, as taxpayers were, you know, funding these things and so them having more confidence and trust in the process is important. I mean, to show Alder, I want to get to Amber McGrinnell's hit upon that, and I'll, I'll loop back. But uh, increased confidence in in the government, I suppose, would be one outcome. What uh, what are some other outcomes, potential outcomes, positive or negative, that you think might happen as, by whatever means, uh, voter turnout increased? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think, you know, increased uh, confidence in the system, um, but also just increased confidence in uh, in the policy outcomes, I think, is an important thing. You know, if you have, I just don't know that it's very sustainable to have a country uh, whose, you know, uh, local and uh, state and national governments don't actually accurately represent the will of the people. Um, you know, that I think that's a sort of cause for a lot of unrest. Um, and so, you know, it's, like people can disagree, and obviously, even as more people vote, more people will be disagreeing on on you know the policies that are in place. But um, you know, if you if you if you go the other direction, if we think about um, what would happen if voter turnout became less and less, either through apathy or through uh, barriers to voting, um, I think that you would start to see. Uh, a lot more unrest, a lot more dissatisfaction, um, not just with the process, but you know, with the with the policies. Um, Amber McReynolds, I wonder what 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 are your goals? You hundred um, percent turnout? Is that is that your goal ultimately? I I don't. Well, I think people have um, as long as we make the opportunity available, and if they choose not to do it for whatever their reasons are, then they then they should have that ability. Um, you know, I think we just want to continue to to provide accessible options, make it easy for people to engage, um, give them opportunity um, to, to, to do what they want to do. We just came off a primary in June where I think it's our highest primary turnout. We have precincts that were at 65% turnout in a primary, which is awesome. Um, so continuing to see that grow, 
I always say that every single election matters tremendously, local elections, school board elections. So I think there's definitely some work to do there. Um, but I think, again, this is, this is, you know, from my perspective, it is the job of an election official to provide opportunity, communicate about the process, make sure it's easy and accessible for people to access um, the candidates and the campaigns, and they freely admit this. I mean, they want their voters to vote. So they're not trying to outreach to everybody. Um, and in a state where we have almost 40% of our voters unaffiliated, they're getting even less touch points than, than the sort of members of the political parties because that's what the parties do is they outreach to their voters. So that's part of the reason why I'm such a big advocate for um, kind of engagement by election officials to communicate the clear and um, the clear information to everybody so that everybody can access this and people don't get advantages just because of who they're affiliated with. Um, so, you know, that's why it's important for us. And I don't, you know, I don't expect 100%, but I think if every voter that wants to vote has an opportunity and can do so easily, that's where we want to be. Um, over 80%, I think, is a good target. Uh, there's some states that are 40-some percent turnout in presidential races. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do there. And when you look at those states and just looking at the top six states, the top six states for turnout in 2016 all have a policy um, in place that works, and that's same-day registration. They have eliminated the registration deadlines, Colorado being one of them. All six states have that commonality, and that's something that, you know, we certainly have to consider and look at. Ballot delivery and voting options are another commonality amongst states that do well in terms of the uh, performance index and, and turnout. We just have a couple minutes left, maybe a minute each uh, for each of you, starting with Amelia Showalter. Uh, what would you say at the end of the discussion here? If the, if the goal is increased voter participation, an important part of democracy, as we head toward the midterms, what, uh, what's top of mind for you? Well, what's top of mind for me is, um, you know, some, sometimes the argument that uh, people make against these voter reforms is like, well, you, you don't want to make it so easy for people to vote, or if people really cared, you know, to vote, then they would they would show up on election day, even if it was hard. Um, but I think that that it represents um, a lack of empathy for just, you know, people's lives, uh, the kinds of things that happen in people's lives. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but for the very first time uh, in June, I missed an election here in Washington D.C., um, and that's because you know we don't have uh, we don't have uh, vote at home here. Um, I was all I was planning to vote in the primary, uh, but on that very Tuesday, I got called away unexpectedly, and I wasn't in town, and I wasn't back until after the polls had closed. It's um, things like that. Obviously, like I care about voting very much, um, and so it's not the case that. The people who choose not to vote are just, you know, they're apathetic, they don't care, so we shouldn't value their vote. We should. People just have lives, and what we can do to make, whatever we can do to make it easier for people to vote within the, um, you know, the, the complexities of their lives, like, that's a very important thing to do. And we'll give the last word to Amber McReynolds, uh, about, a, about a minute. Uh, what's top of your mind? Yeah, I think... Um Again, making the process um, accessible and engaging for every voter is important. Giving voters options. Uh, people have a lot going on in their lives, whether they're working multiple jobs or there's you know health considerations, whatever that is. 
And we, it is our responsibility as election officials to make sure that they have um, the opportunity to participate. And, you know, from an operational efficiency perspective, um, it, it, by us being able to provide clear, concise instructions to every voter through the ballot packet that we send out at home, we no longer are reliant on a poll worker at a polling place to explain a process. Everyone is getting the same exact information. They can access it as they want. So we've created kind of consistency in that process, and it's, and it's really important. And then all the systems that support voters, ballot trace, other customer service um, systems that we have, just make that easier. And, and on the election official side of things, you know, states that have, like, excuse absentee voting where you have to fill out a form every time that you want to get an absentee ballot in every election, those election officials have to process all that paper every single time. And it's probably the same voters almost every time asking for their mail ballot again. So there's a lot of operational efficiency that can really help when counties and localities are constrained from a budgeting perspective. The fact that we can reduce costs and provide more access and provide better service and more security with a paper ballot is is significant. And um, so, you know, I want to continue to help others, and I think the National Vote at Home Institute, that's why it's been set up, and it's been set up to do just that, is help states uh, look for reforms that, that do exactly this. Well, we are out of time. Interesting topic, of course, uh, heading to the midterms uh, not too long away. Our guests have included Amber McReynolds, Director of Elections for the City and County of Denver, member of the National Vote at Home Institute Board. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Amelia Showalter has joined us, co-founder and CEO of Pantheon Analytics and Director of Digital Analytics for President Obama's re-election campaign. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.